1: I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Many are the pleasures of a Grant Ginder novel. Very few writers can make you love a fuck-up the way Grant can. His runaway bestseller, now soon to be a feature film... The People We Hate at the Wedding, gave us a taste for how family dysfunction, set in an over-the-top wedding in luxury London, makes for the most wonderful kind of catastrophe. Emma Straub says of Grant's novel, Honestly, We Meant Well, this rollicking book has it all, sex, lies, and scenery. Grant Ginder weaves a wonderfully engrossing, multi-generational family story with the Greek isles as a backdrop so beautiful that the reader will want to dive in. And if an iconic backdrop to familial catastrophe is what you're needing from your reading life right now, you can't miss his latest. Let's not do that again. Start with political intrigue that bridges New York and Paris, mix it with a wealthy and connected family in free fall, and tie it together with a transnational criminal cover up, and you have one of the most engrossing novels of the year. Grant's work reminds us why the novel form can be both beautiful and rivaled, literary and popular. I had such a wonderful time talking to Grant about working in that rarefied space in the publishing world today. I hope you enjoy our interview. Let's start the show. Welcome back. You probably already know and love Grant Ginder. He's a writer that moves in a territory, straddling the worlds of so-called literary and popular fictions. In novels like Driver's Education, Honestly We Meant Well, and The People We Hate at the Wedding, one can expect to find descriptions of scene and place born of a care for how language brings beauty into the world, mixed with an unflinching eye for social and personal catastrophe. Grant is back, just in time for warmer weather and our months of languid evening reading, with Let's Not Do That Again, a political drama wrapped in a romance and packed full of family dysfunction. One reviewer called it House of Cards with Heart, but you would need a good dose of Jonathan Franzen, Emma Straub, and Emily in Paris to round out that description properly. In a nutshell, this is a novel that wants you to have fun while asking you to care about the big questions that shape our lives. Let's Not introduces us to the Harrison family. Nancy, the mom, is running for senator from a house seat she occupies after being elected to her husband's seat after his tragic death. Son, Nick, is a professor and playwright, writing a musical about Joan Didion that no one will take seriously. He's the peacemaker with no illusions about his family's dysfunctions, and he carries around a nagging suspicion that real love is not out there waiting for him. Greta, the daughter, is under the sway of her grandmother, who cannot forgive Nancy for her son's untimely death. Greta will make an ugly splash all over her mother's campaign with an ill-thought-out bit of vandalism. The story vacillates between Paris, in the midst of social upheaval and a rising nationalist wave, and New York, where the wealthy and powerful live lives apart from the melting pot. Grant is never afraid to open up the Harrisons and their ilk to a probing critique of their privilege and foibles, while still asking us to root for them even in their lowest moments. They are indeed a lovable family of fuck-ups. The result is a novel exquisitely of our moment. Let's Not is a cosmopolitan novel of two great cities and a reminder that even the most worldly lives are lived mostly in a couple of city blocks. Welcome to the show, Grant Ginder.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's thrilling to have you here, and I was wondering if you could give us a taste of the very beginning of the novel so we can get the sound of it in our ear and share the prologue, um, which sets up a family conflict that will roil the lives of the Harrisons for the duration of the novel.
0: I would love to. I would love to. And and, and given that it's the prologue, I don't think that there's, there's too much of an introduction that's needed, though. You've given a wonderful one for it, Chris. Um, So here it goes. The the title of the prologue is Give Me a Smile. The champagne has gone to her head. Also, there's the problem of the smoke. It's everywhere. The smell of burning wood and plastic assaulting her nostrils, the crisp static of smoldering embers. It's raining, but that hardly helps. Fires spill from the storefronts along the avenue. Flames outside of Bulgari, singed mannequins at Hugo Boss and Lacoste. A bank with smashed windows turned into an open-air theater. Shirts with their tags still on them strewn across the street. She finds herself part of an organized and slow-moving chaos. Protesters creep up the Champs-Élysées, their jackets slick with rain, until the police, feeling as if they've been too generous, force them to relinquish ground. This is how it works, how it surges. Two steps forward, one step back. The sea as the tide rises, climbing over shells on a long stretch of beach. Some of them wear gas masks that make them appear alien, insectile, and those who do not wrap their faces with handkerchiefs and scarves, a strip of wool bearing the logo of Paris Saint-Germain, or, in her case, a square of silk from Hermes. Often she sees the marchers, patriots to some, terrorists to others, stop to take selfies. Here we are, and here France burns, their smiles say, and when they're finished, they march on. They dodge giant hoses and sing. They balance their lit cigarettes behind their ears so they can use both their fists. They inch closer to the Arc de Triomphe and from behind police barricades, tear gas cannons pop like so many corks. The mob's anatomy is the structure of an atom. At the center is a tight nucleus around which orbits a wild tangle of electrons. She is one of those orbiters. She could be 18, but she could also be 30. The smoke smudges out her years, adding lines where there shouldn't be lines while stealing others away. She wears a black Chanel dress and a pair of Adidas trainers, and in her right hand she holds a half-full bottle of champagne. Beneath her silk scarf she's smiling, but it's a different smile from the others. Hers is not wild and tenacious, but rather curious, the mild surprise of someone who's just woken up from a long summer nap. She reads some of the signs around her and joins in some of the chants, but after a few minutes, she gets restless, bored. She takes another swig of the champagne and drifts farther away. Two people follow her. The first, a camera operator from a French news station. The second, a handsome man with full brown hair. They track her as she crosses Avenue Georges sank and stops finally beneath the blood-red awning of Fouquet's. The girl looks at the man with the camera, then up at the iconic restaurant. This, she seems to be saying to him, is the spot. Bits of marble lie at her feet, the detritus of a facade that used to stand here or on the grand boulevards, scabs picked from the face of Paris. She crouches down to touch them, and for a pure crystalline instant, the sound of the avenue quiet and the world calms. Here is a girl, her hair in her face, running her fingers along the smooth edge of a stone. But then, on Ruta Bassano, there is the wail of a siren, close and high and loud, like the screech of bombers grazing tops of trees. The girl stands up and whips her head around. She waits for the siren to fade, and once it does, she looks down at the champagne, as if she suddenly remembers she's holding it. With her head tilted back, she finishes what's left of the bottle. Then, she hurls it as hard as she can through the front window of Fouquet's. Glass shatters. A waiter screams. Her hands now freed, the girl searches her pockets for a cigarette. The camera coaxes her into focus and beside it, the handsome man laughs. Greta, he shouts, give me a smile. At first, the man with the camera worries that his friend has made a mistake. The girl stares at them blankly, her eyes wide and green and full. But a moment later, aha, there it is. The devilish curl of her lips, the glint of her perfect American teeth.
1: Thank you so much. That was wonderful to hear, and such a, uh, a great and indicative passage of the kind of work you do with description. Um, Greta, who's tossing the champagne bottle here through a bistro window in what can only be described as a moment of pure naivete, <laughs> um, she's wandering into a political scene of which she understands very little and her participation in destroying property bears none of the convictions that might accompany a protest what did you want to show us about greta in this scene and was this always the opening of the novel
0: so this i'll i'll, I'll start with the last question that you asked this was always the opening of the novel i i actually when the when the idea for the novel came to me I I wrote this scene on the subway believe it or not on the note action, or the note the notes app of my phone um and then got back to my computer and and, and it, you know transcribe you know transcribe it onto onto a word document um so I think that Greta right Greta is as you said incredibly naive here um she's she's very she's a very smart girl um she is a little um she's drifted very far from her family at this point I think that her motivations here are, you know, it's funny, I was thinking, I I would say at first that they're not political, but I want to edit that a little bit and say that they are Mm -hmm. political, but they're not political in the same way that the other protesters' motivations are political. She, in this case, is looking to to strike revenge at her mother and to cause sort of this, you know, hellish um, (laughs) final few weeks of her mother's campaign. Um, And so that's what I wanted to get across. I, um, you know, I also think that there's something to be said for that rule in fiction writing of, I, I learned this in my MFA program, that it's one of the few things that I actually remember from my MFA program, <laughs> but um, that, you know, it, 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 the, 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 the image that was given to me by by a teacher of mine was, you know, the bold, a boulder is going to roll down a hill and that's starting the plot. And You don't want to start a book at the moment where the boulder is, you know, rolling up to the edge of the cliff. You want to start the book at the moment where a bird lands on the boulder and that's what causes the boulder Mm. to go down the cliff. And so I I I had that in my mind when I was writing this novel that like I had to start with the inciting moment. Um, and what better inciting moment than throwing a champagne bottle through a window in Paris?
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't think of, of much more uh, just absolutely evocative. Um, <laughs> but I'm thinking now that your students, um, your creative writing students, are going to take your anecdote of writing the opening in your notes function on the subway as a, uh, a yeah. form of pedagogy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What though, I'm I'm actually okay with that. I've weirdly been writing more and more in the note section of my iPhone. And Mm. there's something about it that I feel to be very freeing. There's a playfulness to it that I um that that's different than when I'm, you know, sitting in front of my computer staring at a Word document. And so I've been doing it more and more. I'm, I, you know, I certainly don't don't write the, you know, the majority of my novels on my iPhone now. I think my thumbs would get very tired. But I, I I've been doing it more and more, particularly with scenes that have been giving me trouble on my laptop.
1: Mm, uh, it's like a catalyst to free you from the from the exactly, computer.
0: Exactly, exactly. And there's, I again, I'm, I'm sort of freed from. You know the the weight of making it perfect it, you mm. know there's something there's something very casual about the notes function that that does something to my brain and just gets me writing much more freely
1: that's so interesting, and even the font is kind of imperfect looking on that on the notes function. Um, So this is a tale of two cities, New York and Paris, both of which you paint with the appreciation of someone who loves both places but understands their gritty realities. What's your relationship to these cities, and why did you decide to weave them together in your novel?
0: So both cities obviously mean a lot to me. I've lived in New York for for almost 15 years now, which is hard to believe. Uh, And I've spent also a considerable amount of time in Paris. I studied there and I have a lot of friends there uh, and I go back to visit them frequently. Place in general has always been something that, as a writer, has really interested me. Uh, The intersection between place and character, uh, how place affects character and vice versa. Uh, and also dispelling the mythologies that we have and have built around places is something that, mm-hmm. that really interests me as a writer. And I think that New York and Paris both have these, these really incredible mythologies to them. Um, Paris in particular, I think for Americans, is you know this sort of shining beacon of art and rarefied food and culture It also, though, has, as you pointed out, this really gritty underbelly, and it's a city that's plagued with, um, you know, with nationalism and racism um, and excludes a lot of marginalized groups. And so exploring those underbellies uh, was really interesting and important to me, Um, again, to both uh, prop up the mythologies, but then also to subvert them.
1: Yeah, you know, I found myself still being able to love Paris, or at least my image of Paris that I keep in my mind, while at the same time remembering that like all cities, it's a place that has, you know, real considerable problems, that the thing we think of as Paris is actually an incredibly, as you say, exclusionary Mm -hmm. zone, Mm -hmm. um, where only certain people are accepted, either tacitly or explicitly, Mm -hmm. um, but you get you get both of those things, like there's a real love of New York as well, um, and, and also a sense that it is a place where the inequities are, in, in many ways, the kind of easiest to behold in the country. You can mm-hmm. just look around and see the people who love it, live up very, very high with views of the park and the people who live very, very low on the street level.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I think New York is, you know, as equally of a complex place as Paris is, and as you pointed out, the the particularly with these, you know, super tall towers going up, it's a <laughs> you know, those inequities are 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 you know kind of laid bare for all to see. Um, and New York is a place that I absolutely love. It's it's the sort of you know it's the place where. Whenever I leave it, uh, I'm very happy to get out of it. But then within five days, I'm like, all right, it's like time to get back to New York. You know, (laughs) what better place? Uh, But you know, it's it's. I I think New York. I always tell people, I think New York is the sort of city where, if you're having a good day, in New York, it's going to be one of your best days ever. Mm -hmm. If you're having Mm -hmm. a bad day in New York, the city, it's like the city knows it and will do everything in its power to make sure it's one of your (laughs) work. Your days will be delayed. It'll start raining. Your umbrella will break. You know, like a car will drive by in a puddle and splash you. Like everything that can go wrong will go wrong on those bad days in New York. Um, And so it's this, I think people who live here have this this love-hate relationship with it, you know, erring more on the side of love. Um, And Nick, the character in the novel um, who's writing the musical on Joan Didion, (laughs) uh, certainly kind of embodies that complex relationship
1: with the city. Mm. I, whenever I visit friends in the city and I come back and I and I yearn for their lives, they just direct me to subway creatures on Instagram, <laughs> and I see, you know, a man sitting with an open container of fish heads on his lap in the subway, and I think, okay, I can I can live somewhere <laughs> else.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so let
0: I'll keep
1: my eye. On it. <laughs> yeah. Do um, let's. Let's Not is a difficult book to categorize. It is literary fiction, but unpretentious. It is fun and absorbing, but it doesn't shy away from upsetting truths about the world. It's a romance that has real problems with the cliches and cultural expectations for how romance should look and act. And it's hilariously funny about things that require our serious contemplation. There are few writers, I think, who can handle these kinds of tensions and still produce something entertaining. I'm thinking of Emma Straub as a particular standout in this category. It's difficult to get that balance right. Let's Not is in fact a lot more like a 19th century novel in its interests and its polarities. How would you categorize what it is you're doing in Let's Not? And why do you think it's a rarer category of the novel these days?
0: That is a great question. I'm flattered that you mentioned Emma's work. I, I actually, I, you know, I, I absolutely adore her and her novels. I'm so excited for a new one. Um, Me too. It's you know, I it's funny to to kind of strike that that balance of all of the things that you mentioned. I I actually had to get myself to stop worrying about categorization. Mm-hmm. Uh, my third book, which which has taken a, a career really to do. My third book was *The People We Hate at the Wedding*, and the first two before that were um, *This Is How It Starts* and *Driver's Education*. *Driver's Education* was was the product of my MFA program, and then after my I received my MFA. I, I actually worked on a novel for about four years that ended up not selling. That was this kind of you know literary historical fiction that I did a ton of research for. And it was the, I wrote it because it was the kind of book that I thought I was supposed to write after finishing an MFA program and, uh, and it didn't sell. And so after it didn't sell, my agent came back to me with some edits and I looked at the edits and I said, okay, I'm going to turn to these in a month or two, but you know what? Before I turn to these, I'm just gonna, as a palate cleanser, I'm just gonna want, I'm just gonna write something that I want to write, something that doesn't care about categorization, isn't thinking about the definitions between literary fiction and commercial fiction, but is exploring things that I'm interested in exploring, namely relationships between family members, uh, and etc. and you know, dysfunctional families. And so I wrote the people we hate at the wedding, and I wrote it in some in something like nine months. It just kind of came oh, wow. out. Of- and I had so much. Fun Don't
1: tell that to your students. I
0: will not. I will not. It was a, it was a kind of a singular experience. And and after that, I had so much fun doing it. And it was so satisfying that I just I I, I told myself, you know, I'm not going to focus on these categorizations anymore. And I'm going to write about the things that are interesting me at that moment. And I'm going to write the story that I feel like I need to tell and that I want to read. And so to get to the second part of your question about why you know, why I don't think that many novels like this exist anymore. I, I think that the industry in general is risk averse. And mm-hmm. is, as much as they say that people in the industry, as much as they say that they're interested in novels that bend genres and that exist in this sort of in-between space. Uh, I don't know how true that is. I think that if you can't easily classify a novel, people are afraid of it, and they don't know how to approach it or market it. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, I think that these complexities, you know, in in this like sort of TikTok world that we're living in, (laughs) I think complexity and nuance and juggling multiple different themes at a time kind of scares people.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And it feels like for something to really get weight behind it in one of the big houses, it often has to look like something that came before it and be able to carry that tagline.
0: Right. Like,
1: this is the next Station 11, or yeah. this is the next whatever. Um, and, you know, if you're doing something outside the box, you're you're hopefully not going to have a a previous progenitor. And so it's harder to say what it is.
0: I absolutely
1: agree. The subtitle of your novel could easily be Rich People Behaving Badly. (laughs) The Harrisons live a life of exquisite privilege in New York City. Nancy ran for and won the House seat previously occupied by her deceased husband, and she's now running for Senate. Nick is a professor who wants nothing more than to bring to life his musical about Joan Didion, and Greta is lonely and displaced, but has immediate access to her grandmother's money for a first-class trip to Paris. And yet, they are never satisfied with their careers, romances, or obligations. What do you think is so appealing about literature that trains its eyes on the foibles and miseries of the rich?
0: Oh my god, it's so fun! It's like why we watch session. <laughs> it's why we watch White Lotus, right?
1: There's
0: an incredible amount of Schadenfreude in just seeing, you know, that rich people can also be absolutely miserable. Um, I I don't know. I, I think that I have I have a lot of fun with it. I have a lot of fun skewering, you know, the privileged. Um, and that was something that again that I realized when I was writing People We Hate at the Wedding that that i had a blast doing it you know i grew up on i grew up in orange county in Laguna Beach um and you know was sort of surrounded by by a lot of you know mothers driving white range rovers and that sort of thing and just like mm-hmm. observing just how, how kind of ridiculous this world was uh i think stayed with me but but the the the, the easiest explanation and, and i think probably the truest explanation is that it's it's just it's it's a blast to do and i think it's also <laughs> to read right there's there's this element of just of um loving seeing very privileged people in in abject misery
1: You know, now that you're mentioning it, I could totally see the Harrisons as another family on White
0: Lotus.
1: (laughs) They would absolutely fit in perfectly.
0: I totally agree. I absolutely agree. We should we should, you know, we should call up Mike White and say we've got some characters.
1: Yeah, it's time. Time for expanding. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Nancy Harrison, candidate for Senate, asks her son, Nick, whether she's a good mother. His reply is brutal. He tells her that she's a very good politician. Nancy is a fantastic study in ambition and the ways in which women are judged differently for their career goals, sometimes by their own children. But it's the truth that Nancy plays a political game that has consequences for her family. How did you balance withholding a sexist critique of Nancy's maternal instincts with your own judgments of her as a person with real flaws?
0: Wow, that is a fantastic question. So first things first, it was very important for me that Nancy was a, a woman and a mother as opposed to her being a father of this family. Um, I think that women in politics, uh, I'm gonna say something that that is you know should be obvious to everyone who lived through the 2016 election, but I think that women in politics face uh, a tremendously unfair, unfair uphill battle. They have to work 20 times as hard. They are criticized for in, in, in public for both you know their their mothering skills, their own political skills. And, and, and so Nancy for me was an opportunity to explore really just sort of the nightmarish um, uh, treatment that I thought Hillary Clinton got in the 2016 elections. I think that but to, to, to the second part of your question, I, I, I you know she is a, she is an incredibly complex character and she is balancing quite a bit in terms of raising these two children on her own and also um, her own political ambitions but i think that i think that mothers are allowed to have political ambitions i think that mothers allow, are allowed to have career ambitions and so i think it's it's um you know not to see her struggling with with those two priorities were, I I think would have been unfair, or unrealistic to the character. Um, And I think that those two priorities are in fact more in line than her children in particular are willing to acknowledge. A lot of what she's doing in the political realm is to make a better world for her children. And so there's there's a bit of irony there that she's being, you know, criticized even by her own son for being a bad mother, when in fact she's, you know, beating herself into the ground in Washington to make sure that her children have, a you know, earth that's inhabitable when, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, later on in life.
1: Yeah, and she's not, she has her eyes wide open to the game. Absolutely. She, she knows it's a game. She knows it. It requires some level of, frankly, kind of phoniness mm-hmm. and a little bit of over attention to surface elements. Mm-hmm. But she still very much is holding on to the kind of depth underneath, and as you say, that kind of future world. And it's interesting then, you know, that Kate, who Nancy brings on to her campaign after Kate abandons Google, ends up being kind of a foil to Nancy in that she's ambitious, but she seems to have kind of harder limits on how she's willing to enter that game. She believes in results-oriented politics, while Nancy is more in the sort of politics qua politics to get things done. How did you envision their unlikely partnership?
0: That's a great question. And you know, actually, in earlier drafts of the book, Kate was even a a, a larger foil for Nancy. And Kate's Kate's morals and ethics, and to your point, results into politics, um, created even a bigger problem for Nancy. Uh, or not problem, but but barrier for Nancy to you know to to, to overcome. Uh, it was important for me with Kate's character to provide um, a slightly more, slightly more, I'll say, moralistic view of politics and what it's capable of doing uh, mm-hmm. and the people who work within it. I, as cynical as I am, I still have a little bit of hope for the politics of this country. And for me, Even
1: after last week or this, the beginning of this week.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it's God, Chris. It's you know, it's that 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 little bit of hope is fading very quickly. I'll say that much. But when I was <laughs> writing this book, you know, I was still I still had hope for it. And uh, Kate, I think, is is representative of that hope of someone who I would want to see working on a political campaign who understands the game. Uh, is only willing to play it to a certain degree and as and is much more aware of the sacrifices that she has to make to play it than perhaps Nancy is.
1: Mm, yeah. There is an another element to Nancy's life as a woman in politics, and that is trying to balance her relationship with her mother-in-law, who is, uh, one could say a mother-in-law for the ages, uh, the animosity between the two, which comes out of a real tragedy, but one that's used for manipulation cannot be overstated. Why does this stereotype of the horrible mother-in-law continue to absorb us in art and in real life?
0: You know, it's great, and it's something that it's, it's, it's a great question. And it's something that I think about really often. Even when I was writing this mother in law, I was like, why am I reaching for the mother in law? So it's a question that even after writing this book, I don't know if I have a solid answer for. You know, I, with Nancy and her mother in law, Eugenia, I was actually really interested. Within their animosity of exploring uh, deeper issues of class uh, and class mm-hmm. judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, Eugenia is, is the, by far and away, the wealthiest person in the book. Um, you know, she lives at a townhouse at like 74th and 5th. Um, she is, and has grown up quite wealthy. Her husband, uh, was, you know, uh, a politician. Her son, Nancy's late husband, um, was part of that political dynasty. Nancy doesn't necessarily come from money. She's from the Midwest and her mother-in-law has always treated her, um, as Nancy says, as a as a, a piece of trash and heels blowing east, and so that tension over the this this sort of club of the ultra wealthy not oh, wow. allowing an incredibly ambitious, incredibly smart woman to enter it, and then what that woman has to do to sort of claw at their approval um, was interesting for me to to explore, and. You know, I also just sort of like liked the idea of this, this incredibly wealthy widow surrounded by art in a townhouse on 24 or on 74th Street, you know, eating, food, <laughs> which is really what Eugenia is um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it also played into this sort of skewer in the wealthy as well.
1: Yeah that old money club that doors are shut up tight with no no new members allowed is just an impossible thing for Nancy and it's it's not as though she's particularly interested in in her wealth but she wants to at least be a family member and correct. even that is is inaccessible correct correct So you're often praised in reviews as a master of character development that allows flaws, mistakes, and character defects to live comfortably in your protagonists. Without ruining key plot denouements, I will say that this is doubly true for Nancy, (laughs) Greta, and Nick. But you managed to get us to root for the Harrison family even when their foibles turned to crimes how do you hold on to our empathy for your characters who have crossed uncrossable lines?
0: That's a fantastic question. I think the secret is that you as the writer have to love the characters as well. I think that once you lose faith in your character's inherent goodness, the reader can sense that and the reader will lose faith in them as well. Uh, I'm not interested in writing perfect people. I'm not interested in writing heroes, nor am I interested in writing pure villains. Though in this case Eugenia perhaps could be. Um the mother-in-law could be
1: classified as one. She's pretty villainous. <laughs> She's
0: pretty, pretty villainous. So is, you know, so is I will say Xavier who is the the the, the French oh, fan yeah. who seduces Greta. Um, but, but then again, there, there's, I, I don't think that there's any other way to portray a fascist other than being villainous. Um, but for, for my other characters, I, I you know, I'm interested in their complexities and I'm interested in their flaws, particularly, uh, as those flaws manifest themselves within a family. One thing that as a writer, I'm really drawn to exploring, um, is the, the, the imperfect ways that we love one another. And the tensions that exist between our own selfish desires and the obligations that we have to one another, you know, I think that that love ultimately disappoints us not forever, but I think it's bound to right with the people we love disappoint us. We disappoint the people we love, but that doesn't, that doesn't absolve us from the duty of continuing to love them. And so that complexity is really interesting to me. And requires me as i'm exploring it to to really love my characters despite their own flaws
1: it's almost like you're inviting us into their family and saying you understand that families are complicated and have (laughs) imperfect forms of love but they love each other anyway and you're asking the reader to feel that way exactly So one relationship in the novel that really does feel like an uncompromised good is Nick's blooming romance with the FBI agent Charlie. It's the thing that grounds Nick, and it is also just a joyful, sexy, loving thing in his life. (laughs) Do you think we're in a new era of literary representations of queer romance that finally gets to be centered by joy rather than pain and suffering?
0: I, I Chris, I sure hope so after all of this time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I sure hope so. But I do, I you know, and that's something I'm I'm also hopeful about. Um I do think that we're there. I think that um, you know I see a lot of really incredible writers doing that. Um, you know, other gay writers like Stephen Rowley are just you know exploring these queer romances that that don't end in absolute tragedy. You know, it used. I feel like when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, if a character was gay, that meant that they were going to die by the end of the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, or the end of the TV show. And and I think that we've certainly moved away from that. For me, as a writer, that is also something that's really important to explore. Um, you know, all of my books, since People Hated the Wedding, have had central queer characters to them that that have relationships that are kind of, that look like, you know, the relationships that we're all used to seeing that uh, in our own lives, that don't end in tragedy or death or shaming, but have the sort of complications that I think heterosexual relationships have been painted with, you know, since, since the beginning of literature. And and so I do think that we're entering a new phase uh, or a new stage in in how queer relationships are depicted in books, which I think is very exciting because I just think about, you know, when I was reading books um, as a teenager and struggling with my own sexuality, it would have been so wonderful and so helpful to have those sort of stories uh, to read and, you know, to look forward to. Those kinds of relationships to look forward to, uh, as opposed to, as you as you mentioned, as I mentioned, just these these tragic romances.
1: Mm. And now you'll get to um, look forward to more of them, and more of them being banned from schools in oh. Texas and Florida. So, oh my god! So. I found the politics of your novel to be rather eerily prescient. Uh, I was finishing it as Marine Le Pen was flying up in the polls in France. Um, I wonder why you decided to have your villain, Xavier, be a young Frenchman capable of transmitting old forms of xenophobic nationalism to young people.
0: Well, you know, I think that we would like to believe that they're old forms of xenophobic nationalism, but the truth is, I think that those xenophobic forms of nationalism are on the rise, and particularly mm-hmm. in countries like the U.S. and France. Um, I did a lot of really frightening research into French nationalism while uh, while I was writing this book, and the truth is that. Uh, it certainly hasn't disappeared. In fact, it's it's gaining ground. And as you pointed out, the elections with Marine Le Pen, you know, thank God she lost, but mm-hmm. um, she didn't lose by as big of a margin as last time. And she's quite young, and I'm certain she'll run again. Uh, and so, and those things terrify me, frankly. Uh, the rising tides of nationalism, both here and in Western Europe. Um, are are incredibly concerning, um, and they're the sort of things that keep me up at night. And I think that this this book was a way for me to to explore them, to reveal the the, the horrific absurdities of their beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, this this idea that Xavier in the book subscribes to of the, the Great Replacement is is was was coined actually by a, a French philosopher, a far right French philosopher, this notion that Oh, the- I
1: didn't realize that was a French thing.
0: Yes, absolutely. And that has been co-opted by American nationalists. This notion that the elites in the country are in essentially in cahoots with immigrants to uh, to replace the country's native population it's this insane conspiracy theory that again was coined by this French nationalist and has made its way to the United States and serves as the root of the nationalist movement in the United States. And so, um, those things really, really terrify me. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so, as I said, this book was a chance for me to explore them and to uncover the absurdities behind them.
1: Yeah. The, uh, just thinking about now we have this horrible shared territory with France and with with lots of countries in Europe and places that we think of as in some way kind of isolated, at least since World War II from this, and the way like Marine Le, Le Pen and, and others, these kind of fascist nationalists are on the rise and they have these absurd, absurd theories. I mean, think about immigrants, you know, where do they have the agency? with mm-hmm. which to be in cahoots with anyone, mm-hmm. um, let alone human rights to be able mm-hmm. to you know enjoy their lives. Um, but it, that absurdity it seems to have taken hold. And there are mm-hmm. lots of important reasons, economic, cultural, and otherwise for that. But um, I mean, you're able to, in a book that is hilariously funny, also make us nervous that that's such a mainstream idea now.
0: Yeah, I, um, I, that was the goal. Um, I think that I, with the politics in this book, uh, wanted to, to shed light on that and particularly how those politics exist on the internet. Greta gets pulled in by Xavier on the internet, playing a video game on the internet. Uh, when I was researching this book, I read a really incredible, though, really terrifying, um book nonfiction called antisocial by the new yorker writer andrew Morantz that that details the role that the internet plays in radicalization and what struck me about it was both how rampant it is after reading the book i like never wanted to go on the internet again but but also the ways in which um the ways in which people who are looking to radicalize other prey upon loneliness and use the promise of love and community as a way to radicalize incredibly lonely, incredibly desperate people. And so I wanted to explore that in the book as well. And there, there's frankly nothing funny about it. Um, but but it was important for me to, to, to get that aspect, that very modern aspect of nationalism and xenophobia and the way that these beliefs are able to, to, to continue spreading into the book.
1: It's interesting that you mention loneliness because uh, one of my very smart students uh, just wrote a paper about Hannah Arendt's theory of loneliness as the mm-hmm. as the substance of, of totalitarianism, and it's how it is able to uh, catch hold in a in a national environment, and it. And it makes so much sense now thinking about Greta and how displaced and lonely she felt and how easily then she was willing to kind of take her smarts and push them to the side of her of her brain and allow a kind of lizard brain that just says, you know, I want to be loved. I want to be, um, you know, someone to see me and have that replace it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's exactly I read that that Hannah Rent piece, piece as well uh, numerous times while I was while I was writing this novel. Uh, and so I'm glad to hear you mention it here. Um, and that's exactly what I was going for with Greta. The, the 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 degree to which she's able to push aside her own intelligence, her own sense of being and morals, because she is so desperate to feel loved and wanted.
1: Well, on a, a much more hopeful note, uh, your hit novel, The People We Hate at the Wedding, is being made into a feature film starring Alison Janney and Kristen Bell. I think that's an incredibly exciting cast. I love both of them. Um, was your, what was your role in the adaptation, if you had one?
0: So I, I didn't have a role, uh, which you know what I am incredibly happy about. I <laughs> um, I actually had very little interest in adapting the novel. I I was too close to it. Uh, I still mm-hmm. think I'm too mm-hmm. close to it, uh, and and so I think that if I tried to do it, I would try to adapt it scene by scene by scene, which. It's a terrible idea, right? I mean, a, a <laughs> novel is a very specific art form. A film is a very specific art form, and it can't be directly translated. And so, uh, I'm very glad that I didn't decide to do it. the The two women who did adapt it, their names are Lizzie and Wendy Molyneux. and they're the the geniuses behind the show Bob's Burgers. If you're familiar, oh with
1: wow, that. yeah, I love um, that show.
0: They yeah, it's so funny. Um, and they are absolutely wonderful, uh, and hilarious, and they really captured i was able to read drafts of of the screenplays it was being completed and uh they really captured the tone of the book and the heart of the book uh and that which was very exciting to see and so when it comes to the actual the you know the, the creative process of creating the movie i i had a very little role in it um a very small role in it that said i did get to go visit the set they filmed the majority of the movie uh, in and around London this past fall, and so I, I I flew over and visited the set I believe in October, which was a, 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 a dream come true. I mean, it was just an absolute blast. um I'd never been on a movie set before, so mm. uh, so that was exciting. But I was also just like absolutely astonished by how many people were involved in the making of this movie. I mean, there were like you know over two hundred oh people on the set. And the, the particular day that I went there to see the filming, it was quite early. They they were shooting outside of London, about two hours outside of London, on this beautiful estate. Uh, I was it was a wedding scene, and um they they sent a car to pick me up, you know, like six o'clock in the morning, and I arrived and saw all these people and. My my initial response was like emotional response was was to just start apologizing to everyone for for making them wake up so early. Um, (laughs) I I was oh my god! I wrote this book and they're making a movie and all these people had to get up at like four o'clock in the morning. And so I was like I was apologizing apologizing to Alison Janney. I was apologizing to the director. I was apologizing to the producers, and they were all just staring at me like, "What are you talking about? You know, this is just a job." And so uh, they were like, get out of here. But it uh, (laughs) it was it was very cool. And, you know, I think it's going to be an absolutely wonderful film.
1: Well, I I can't wait. And I think of um, Let's Not as similarly very cinematic and (laughs) I could see it being snapped up easily for for another movie. Um, Would you have a dream cast in mind for the Harrison family?
0: Oh, that's such a funny question. You know, I, it's, I, of course, right. Every writer, (laughs) Uh, you know, once we're done with the book, um, they, they start thinking like that. Uh, when I'm writing the book that I, I have like very kind of like, uh, amorphous ideas of what these characters look like and I don't pin them to anyone famous or anything like that. But, you know, but, but afterwards, right. You start thinking about it, don't you? Um, I don't, you know, it changes every day. You know, I, I Nancy, it's like, Oh, you know, like Julianne Moore or Lauren Ooh, Moore. Yeah. I think that there are so many incredible actresses out there who, who could do the role justice. I, um,
1: I think. Oh, the, Laura Linney. I think that, oh, that's a brilliant it, choice.
0: Absolutely incredible. I, you know, I think that there are a number of people who also could play Nick and Greta, like Andrew Reynolds could play Nick, I think just, just incredibly, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Cindy Sweeney could play Greta, Uh, there are, Mm. there's so much talent out there right now that that could have fun with these roles.
1: Uh, I'm seeing it already.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, fingers crossed, we'll see what happens.
1: I'm dying to know who are the novelists that you turn to for literary fiction that is entertaining and absorbing. I think there's a lot of readers who, as the days get warmer, are looking for exactly that kind of experience. So when they're done reading, let's not do that again, what should they pick up?
0: Oh, that is a great question. Um, Jennifer Close just had a wonderful novel come out uh, called *Marrying the Ketchups*. That's about a family in Chicago that owns a restaurant and just the generational struggle struggles that um that they're going through, uh, trying to keep this restaurant afloat. It also um, deals with uh, present day politics and the the kind of confounding world in which we currently find ourselves and I tore through it I think I read it in in a period of of like two days it was just absolutely wonderful as you said uh Chris I I love Emma Straub's work I think she's she's a remarkable writer that that straddles that line that you were talking about Mm -hmm. so well between smart literary uh fiction and and you know just fiction that you want to read. The word "commercial," um, I don't even know what that means anymore, really. Um, but but she, I think, falls in that space. I'm a huge fan. You know, um, I know he's working on something right now, but I'm a huge fan of Ruman Alam's work. Oh um, uh,
1: yeah, me too.
0: You know, "Leave the World Behind," which was just an, an an exquisite novel. Um, I thought was just absolutely wonderful. Um, another book that came out earlier this year that i really recommend and kind of is in the vein of you know of it, it, it's very patricia highsmith-esque is oh antoine
1: exciting wilson's.
0: yeah antoine wilson's mouth to mouth um is just a just a like a dynamite dynamite read the entire thing happens in a first class lounge at jfk um, which if, if that doesn't get you wanting to read, <laughs> <laughs> then i don't know what will
1: Well, these are fantastic, and I'm so excited to send them out to listeners and also read them myself. Thank you so much for your smart and and fascinating answers to these questions, Grant.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. This This was a pleasure.
1: Thanks again. Well, that's all from me for now. My sincere thanks to the witty and brilliant Grant Ginder, whose Let's Not Do That Again is available for purchase at your local independent bookstore. There are links to buy Grant's novel and all of his recommended books at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find our previous episodes and a treasure trove of author-recommended books for your summer reading list. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a moment and rate us on iTunes or Spotify as it helps attract other book lovers to the show. I have interviews coming up with Peter Baker, author of Planes, and the one and only Elif Batuman, author of the forthcoming sequel to The Idiot, Either Or. Until then, this has been Burned by Books.